0: Welcome to the Warriors of Education podcast, bringing you heartwarming and real conversations with teachers on the front line of education from across the country. I am Karen Sarah Watson, and I am a teacher. This podcast is for those who want to better understand the experiences of today's teachers. Come join us. Welcome to the Warriors of Education podcast. Today, we have Ryan Bruckenthal here. Ryan, can you tell me a little bit about yourself, where you live, where you teach, uh, what grade you teach, and some things about your, yourself to, to share?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Good afternoon, and thanks for having me, Karen. Um, I so yep. Ryan Bruckenthal I am a high school special ed teacher I am teaching in ICT uh, global history and US history classes but ex- uh,
0: before you stop I just want to explain can you say what ICT is just because some people might not know that in other states
1: absolutely yeah so one of uh, our special education services is integrated co-teaching where myself and a general education teacher um, both teach in our class so in global history class there myself and then a, uh, a general education global history teacher um, and so this is my third year teaching. I teach at the American Sign Language High School in Manhattan um, and I live in Brooklyn and uh, before I was a teacher, I was a union organizer with the Communications Workers of America, um, and I'd always wanted to be a teacher, but right after college, I was a little nervous about uh, the early mornings and sort of dedicating <laughs> all of my time and energy, uh, so I yeah. took a little bit of time doing just some movement work, but uh, sort of the classroom uh, called me back, and when I was ready to take the plunge, I did it.
0: Great. So tell me some a bit about your activism. I know you are very big in the activism scene. So tell me about that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I am both an educator activist um, and then an activist in some other movements and organizations. I am a rank and file union activist in the UFT. I am a delegate for my school. Every school has both a chapter leader, which is like a shop steward and a delegate, which means I sort of go to our union's Congress, the uh, delegate assembly, where representatives from schools all across the city can come together um, to deliberate on the direction of the union. Union, um, and I am a member of the movement of rank-and-file educators, or MORE, um, and we believe in social justice class struggle unionism, meaning um, we see the history of the labor movement and the history of movements for social, economic, and racial justice as intimately intertwined. And so we believe that our union, like other unions and especially other teachers unions, can, can play a really pivotal role in fighting for um, for our own workplaces, but also for our students and for our families. Our uh, slogan is our our, uh, students' learning conditions are our working conditions or our teaching conditions are our students' learning conditions, really showing that um, our struggles are intertwined. So um, I do a lot of my uh, union activism uh, through that, and I'm also a member of the Democratic Socialists of America, um, and our network of Democratic Socialist educators, uh, which is both here in New York City, but also around the country. We have other union activists and warriors of educations um, sort of, uh, fighting <laughs> in, in many different <laughs> venues. Yeah.
0: Great. So, well, first of all, tell me how you're doing through this, during this pandemic, how you and your family are doing, first of all, and how are you doing when it comes to education? Go ahead.
1: Yeah, so I am healthy. My parents are healthy. Um, Unfortunately, I do know family friends and friends of friends who uh, are sick. I know uh, family friends and friends of friends who unfortunately have passed. Um, So it's really uh, a hard time for sure um and it's definitely bizarre for myself being stuck inside all the time i uh sort of love just walking around the city you know when i get out of teaching um seeing how far i can walk from uh 23rd street all the way down to brooklyn and maybe over the bridge Um, but clearly we can't do that now and so it's a little hard uh adjusting to life in quarantine, but, um, you know, I'm making the transition and uh, it's sort of the new normal for now, but I'm definitely looking forward to when we can finally go back outside again. Um, and similarly, my teaching, uh, it's sort of ups and downs of, on the one hand, finding ways of trying to innovate with uh, virtual learning techniques, but also the reality that um, you know, our attendance is certainly struggling compared to normal times. It's, um, students I think are nervous, students are confused, um, and students themselves are dealing with family members and neighbors and friends who are sick and who are dying. So I think, um, yeah, I think that is all happening simultaneously while, you, while we're trying to teach. And so it's, it's certainly a struggle, but one that you know, we're trying to tackle from a lot of different angles
0: what is um what is the average amount of students who are coming into your classroom compared to how many kids you have in your class?
1: So our classroom is not a typical classroom because really any way that a student is engaging we're considering that as teaching and learning so whether they make it to my office hours or if they do um the virtual assignment or if we talk over the phone if we chat on a gchat really any of those we would consider in a class but you know Never are there more than three or four students at one time, say, Mm. in a video chat. Um, Are you doing
0: live teaching?
1: Yeah, I do uh, office hours where I do live teaching and then record that session and then post that for students who either didn't wake up yet or um, who just wanted to, to do it on their own.
0: So what are some of the challenges you're facing right now?
1: I think just access. I think really like um, for a multitude of reasons getting students to engage with the work. um, I'm sort of reverting back to a skill that I I find myself to be pretty good at, which is phone banking, sort of using this organizing and uh, union organizer technique now for teaching of recognizing that I got to call through my list of students to see if they've done work, you know, for our class as well as for their other classes. so luckily, I have those skills, and, I, and I'm putting them into practice. But really, just trying to get students to um, to show up and to do the work um, is, I think, our biggest struggle.
0: Yeah, I teach I teach the really little ones. I'm teaching pre K and K, and, oh and it's different because I'm a theater teacher. But for me, the hardest part is that is is technology because with the Google Meets, I can't. I have to have everybody on mute. And what I teach is so engaging. Like I want to have a back and forth with the students, but I really can't do that because of the technology that they're giving us. Have you, how is it, how's the technology been for you? Is it something you were prepared for, or was it a surprise for you? How was that?
1: It's definitely a surprise. And I mean, I can't imagine working with pre-K right now. I, I, in a sense, (laughs) I'm lucky with high schoolers. Oh my goodness. (laughs) I've talked to other friends who are teachers who are, who are doing a similar thing and it's really just, I can't imagine it. Um, You know, I'm a millennial, so I'm pretty technologically literate and many of my students are as well. But that being said, it's certainly not... Universal or equal like I had a phone conversation last week where I was talking with a student and geez This is a couple of weeks into it where like uh, They were still really struggling to even open up a google doc and figuring out how to properly fill it out um, So of course, this is a crisis none of us were properly trained or, or ready to sort of go into this um, but uh, having to deal with that, it's like even starting from the from basics of here's how you log into a Google Classroom, here's how you go into a Google Doc. Um, so that's a little difficult. But again, it's sort of going to like these old school um, techniques of phone banking. Really, is I think one of the ways to to bring people up to up to date.
0: It's a great skill that you have. That you yeah. you've, you've done enough phone banking that you're used to that. That's great. Mm-hmm. So I know that you've do- you've talked a lot about this period of time in terms of what happened in the last weeks of school before we were, we ended up having to do remote teaching. Can you talk about, I saw an article that you wrote, it's in Jacob magazine. What is it
1: called? Jacobin actually like Jacobin. The, uh, the French revolutionaries.
0: There you go. So can you tell me about that article? Because I found it really interesting.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, when this crisis was unfolding, uh, both here in New York city and nationally, uh, I think there's both uh, Really scary lesson that we learned, but also a really inspiring one. Um, the scary lesson is the degree of um, just lack of political imagination and skill set from many of our leaders. Um, and I think for many of us who are probably listening to the, to this podcast, it's easy for us to point fingers at the federal level and say President Trump was not doing nearly enough, which is clearly true um it might be easy for some to point fingers at the state level maybe not maybe that's a little more controversial and say that the state was not doing enough um and similarly of uh fingers here at the municipal level and say that the mayor's office wasn't doing enough um and some of this comes down to true personalities i mean trump is in many respects uh The way that he talks about um, the virus, the way the complete lack of regard for science and the scientific community is is one thing, but even people who are um, seemingly uh, liberal and seemingly progressive, for instance, like our mayor, um, really just weren't taking it nearly as seriously as possible. And I guess what I argued in the piece is partially that's kind of to be expected. We see how liberal politics over the past couple decades have really just been moving to the right um, and have been embracing austerity and budget cuts but you know in a more uh, progressive rhetoric. Um, So that on the one hand but then the the inspiring thing is how workers and in our instance educators in the schools really stepped up to the task when there was lack of leadership from uh, the city, Uh, educators, paraprofessionals, teachers, school staff really took it upon ourselves to make sure that uh, we were keeping ourselves, our students and our communities safe. And so practically what that looked like was workplace organizing in schools all around the city, at first seemingly organic, Educators started having meetings in their UFT chapters talking about, this is crazy that they're still expecting us to come in to teach and coming into work when, um, for instance, in some schools, there was like g- like cases of COVID-19 being yeah. confirmed and, and educators were still being expected to come in.
0: It was a really scary time. I remember the fear. I, I had no more sick days, so I had to go into school. I know a lot of people called out sick, but I couldn't afford it. But I was terrified those three days.
1: Mm-hmm yeah absolutely same um it's it's interesting thinking of like when it really hit people of how serious it was i think that i was relatively on the early side but then even with that being said i saw friends who were posting about this being really serious and i was kind of like not quite internalizing it but i think there was this this last week before they uh shut the schools where i think it was like between wednesday and friday when it really started hitting a lot of us as educators um and so i had the opportunity to um both Partake in the organizing uh, firsthand, but then also to touch base with educators throughout the city who planned um, actions, who basically said, like, if the city is going to put us in jeopardy, then, you know, we are going to keep ourselves safe. And practically what that looked like was eventually organizing towards a coordinated threat of a sick out, of saying, like, right now, it is not safe if you're feeling remotely sick or if there's confirmed cases of people being sick. Um, it is irresponsible for us to bring masses of people together. Um, so what started um, at a couple schools really quickly bloomed into an organizing call that we as MORE, the movement of rank and file educators, had um, the Saturday uh, leading up to eventually when they closed the schools where we had almost 400 educators from around the school, uh, or from around the city, excuse me, talking about how uh, to get involved and how to organize something similar at their schools. It got national and international press. And I think it was by that Sunday, um, the mayor and the city had in fact said that the schools would close. So it was absolutely a victory. It was sort of a bittersweet victory because no one you know, usually fights for closing schools. Um, that's generally a bad thing and sort of where does that put our students? But, um, but we recognize that educators and parents and students collectively could could tackle these issues. Um, And then there's two other things that I'd like to sort of take as a tangent, but I I can wait a second if you want.
0: Yeah, no, no. okay, Keep going. No, this is interesting. Go ahead.
1: So I think on the one hand, uh, I think this shows us a lesson about the lack of funding for services in New York City. And I want to talk about that. And then additionally, I think this shows us a vision for how unions can um, be run from the bottom up. So on the one hand, the mayor himself said the main reason why he didn't want to close the schools was because schools play an oversized role, both in terms of educating but general services, mental health. Uh, physical health, um, basically daycare, all of these services for the working class of New York City, for the million students that we have and their parents. If we were to close these schools, what's going to happen to those students? What's going to happen to those parents? And that's a reasonable question to ask. Um, For those of us who are democratic socialists, who are progressives, who are um, in more, clearly we see that um, we need a much more robust social safety net and, um, and social welfare state in and outside of the schools as one thing. Um, And so uh, when we're calling for them to close the schools, we're simultaneously calling for um, all of these services to continue to be provided for the students who need them, especially um, for the children of essential workers. Um, And then the second lesson that I think that's worth addressing is showing how um, rank and file unionism, where the members are at uh, the helm and at the driver's seat, is really important for this type of action and, and really important for how we even envision running of unions, um, our union president, Michael Mulgrew, had a, a transformation over the the span of a few days, largely because we were organizing from below. I don't remember the days off the top of my head, but, you know, the first comment that he said when uh, the mayor was saying that uh, the schools would remain open was, you know, he respectfully agreed to disagree as to whether or not we should close the schools. I remember Within that. A couple, <laughs> Yeah, uh within a couple of days when we're organizing, he's starting to to take a much more aggressive stance. Um and then by the weekend before they close the schools, um he's even threatening mass uh action lawsuit against the city for jeopardizing the the health of members and families. Um but the the key lesson I would say is we enable our union to take um more militant stances when we Organize ourselves. When there is this bottom-up unionism, um, that is what enables uh, us to to fight for the things that we know um, that we need and uh, and deserve. Not waiting for things to come from above. So I think that's a really key lesson for for those of us in unions, but generally for people um, who study social movements and are who are trying to build them today can learn.
0: Yeah. Can you imagine what it's like in places that don't have a union or do not have? the power to organize. I think, I mean, I think that there are states like Oklahoma and, and LA who, uh, well, LA has a union, but Oklahoma did not have a union where they rose from the bottom. And I think that it was pretty amazing. But I keep thinking that we are very fortunate that we do have a union, that we have a second layer that's protecting us as opposed to just having nothing and then just trying to organize from the bottom, which is, I, 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 I imagine is that much harder to do.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I guess I would say that, you know, in those two examples that you gave, uh, there had been incredible militant strikes in the past couple of years um, in Oklahoma during the Red for Ed strike wave where you're right, you know, they didn't have, um, I actually don't think they had collective bargaining rights in Oklahoma, they had a union, um, but it was okay. much, much weaker than what okay. we have here in New York. Um, but I, I think the idea of a union is workers coming together, um, fighting for their collective self-interest and for the, the collective self-interest of the working class. Um, and so they perceived themselves kind of like in Newsies, you know, we're the union because we say so. So the educators uh, going out and, and storming the, the state capitol really was a union action, whether or not it was coordinated from uh, the elected leadership of those unions. Um, and furthermore, in LA, um, I think it's a really great example of what our unions could be in terms of being social justice um, movements from below that fight, yes, for higher pay for educators, but also fight for um, immigrants' rights liaisons in the schools to help parents who are facing um, uh, challenges from ICE and whatnot. So I think yeah. um, here, here in New York, we have a lot to learn from them.
0: So what do you think, um, where do you see activism going moving forward from this? I mean, it's so hard to see where we all are going, what's going to happen, who knows what's going to happen tomorrow, much less it looks like we're not going back to school, I, you know, I for the most part where none of us are going back to school, but what is going to happen in the fall? What is going to happen to our rights? What's going to happen to the union? Like, what are you? have you thought about this?
1: Yeah, um, I, I'm thinking personally, and then I'm, I'm discussing with a lot of folks who are also trying to, to tackle this. And I think I'm of two minds. On the one hand, I'm really bummed, um, both because I'm trapped in my house and because I can't see my students, um, and I'm likely not gonna see them until the fall. But also to be fully honest, I'm pretty bummed with uh, the uh, loss of Bernie Sanders in the presidential primary because I yeah. thought that he uh, demonstrated a, another vision for how our country can run. Um, and so now that he's out of the race, it's sort of this really bleak future of either four more years of Trump or, um, I mean, given uh, Joe Biden's most recent television ad where he's demonizing uh, the Chinese uh, sort of like a strong pivot to the right, um, you know, the likelihood of him either not winning or just another four years of sort of a, a toast centrist president is not very good for our schools and for our movements. But on the other hand, I am really excited by this this lesson of workers, educators, and and people standing up and making change uh, for themselves. And so, of course, uh, in the schools it's happening, but it's really happening all over. We see workers at Amazon going on strike for, um, for protective equipment. We see nurses both here in New York Um, having demonstrations, and then I think it was in Colorado, and Denver, literally standing in the street, you know, defending the hospitals from these crazy right-wing mobs that are coming about. Um, I think working-class people and everyday people are stepping up to the task, Um, and so I'm cautiously optimistic. Uh, I think we're hitting a couple speed bumps, but I really think that... we have the potential for transformative politics and I think that educators, students, and workers um, are going to be at the forefront of that. And so I I guess the last thing I'll say is I'm bummed that Bernie is out of the race, but given all this movement of workers and also given democratic socialist candidates um, and progressive candidates all around the country who are running down ballot, um, I think we're building the forces that will be need to to fundamentally transform uh, the economy and politics of the country. Well,
0: it could be you know it also could be that um Bernie might help Joe Biden too. You know, i'm I'm optimistic too, that he created a movement that um, that just might sway uh, him a little bit less to from the center and a little bit more left. so mm-hmm. i'm I'm cautiously optimistic about that possibility and hoping yeah, that people get similar, on board
1: in that. I think it'll be a similar dynamic to what I was discussing of, you know, educators taking the lead and then therefore our union president making more militant um, demands of the city. If this movement of millions of working class people, young people um, taking the lead, fighting for Medicare for all, college for all, a Green New Deal, then perhaps we can expect a similar dynamic with a, a Joe Biden presidency. Yeah, I can imagine.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I'm trying, yeah, trying to have that trying to be cautious, cautiously optimistic myself so that we can have something to look forward to. I'm a little bit worried about the cuts. I think that's what my concern was, because I've already heard that there's massive, massive cuts to education right now in the budget that, of course, the first thing to be cut is education above anything else. And that what are we walking into in the fall? Like, what is that going to look like?
1: Yeah, I don't know what it's going to look like. Um, Budget cuts and huge economic collapse. Um, I think the immediate crisis is a public health one, um, but we're already starting to see um, very serious economic crises coming right on top of it. And I, I think the economists are predicting this to be even worse than the great recession, um, arguably up in the levels of the great depression. So yeah. Yeah. I also don't really know what we're going to in the fall, but I can guarantee you the better organized um, yes. that we are on our end, the the better we can make demands both for Definitely. You know, a, a $1,200 check at one time. Sure. That won't even pay for rent in New York city. Um, but you know, asking for the things that we'll really need in the long term, which I yeah. think we'll, we'll just have to see uh, how things go in the next couple months.
0: Right. Well, before we end, I would love to hear if you have any sort of optimistic story to share with us, because I think we're all kind of dealing with in, in, in fear mode. And I just, I think people really need to hear some great stories about an educational experience, whether it's during remote learning or something during the school year that really inspired you, that keeps you going.
1: Well, it just so happened that in my U.S. history class, we were talking about uh, the Great Depression and the New Deal right when this all popped off. So it was like the two weeks leading up to um, when they finally closed the schools, we were learning about the Great Depression and then we led into FDR and the New Deal. And so I think that the students made some really very clear uh Uh, comparisons to the crises on the one hand, the economic crisis of the Great Depression with then the public health and economic crisis of the COVID-19 crisis, Um, but then what types of solutions um, need to be called for in order to address these? And furthermore, what types of forces are needed to actually get these demands met? And so learning about uh, the New Deal and the role that labor and the left played um, in order to get not just uh you know breadlines or immediate economic uh, assistance, but um, massive government investment and programs and rebuilding infrastructure, tying that into the idea of how are we really going to get out of this very acute crisis, but then the longer term crisis, what do we need oh, maybe a green new deal, maybe massively investing in new infrastructure um to transform uh, our energy system and, and create tons of good paying union jobs in the process. And the kids themselves made the connections. And although I was really terrified of what was coming next, um, I felt that they were well equipped to, to make sense of this world and, and then to change it moving forward.
0: That's fantastic. Well, I can already tell you're an incredible person, an incredible teacher. It's really inspiring to hear what, you, what you're doing. And I think you're hopefully inspiring other teachers to speak their mind and speak up and speak truth to power right now. So um, I just want to thank you. And I wish you all the best in your classroom, in your activism. I, I'm a fan of more. I'm a fan of, you know, of what you guys are out there doing about the grassroots level. I think it's fantastic. And so keep, keep doing it. Keep working hard. And just don't give up hope because in the end, I think we're going to be okay.
1: Great, and I hope- Likewise. Yeah. And thank you so much for having me. Solidarity.
0: Yeah. solidarity. (laughs) Thanks so much. Take care. Um, Also, I just want to say if you're listening to this and you are a teacher or you know a teacher out there, uh, you can reach out to me through warriorsofeducation.com. I'd love to speak to you. I'd love to hear your stories. So thank you so much and have a great day. This has been the Warriors of Education podcast dedicated to all the hardworking teachers across this country. We hear you. We see you. We honor you. Thank you.